0: you would turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, specifically the 15th chapter. This morning, we are going to complete our final installment in this sermon series on the family. We will be returning next week to the Gospel of John, and if you're the curious type and you wonder where we're going to pick up in the Gospel of John, I will tell you right where we left off. That is, at the beginning of chapter 12. But I trust and pray that this short series on the family as an interim has been helpful to you, especially given the need for biblical wisdom for especially young families with so much uh, countervailing opinion out in our society. And this morning we're going to look at an interesting passage in Matthew 15, A passage in which I would like us to look at prayer as the hope of the family. And so if you please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Matthew 15, beginning at verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, how great is your faith! Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this morning that you would bless us through your word. That as we hear it, We would not merely become more knowledgeable, but that we would be changed. We would be transformed more and more into the image of our Savior. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. We have spent time these past few weeks studying the nature of the family and how it is a gift from God. In that study, we have seen the duties and blessings of husbands and wives, fathers and mothers. We've also seen the importance of creating the proper atmosphere for children and a commitment for their spiritual growth. It is important for us to understand God's design for the family, but that can be overwhelming. We can realize that our families aren't perfect. That we need help, a lot of help sometimes. How do we make up for lost time in our families? How do we change patterns in the home? How do we solve problems that come up? Today we see that God has not left us on our own, He does not intend for us to be the real solution to our problems. In that way, our theology of the family is like everything else in the Christian life. We need the grace of God. And God has told us to seek Him in prayer. And so this morning from this text in Matthew 15, I would like us to see three things about prayer in the family. First, we see our need for prayer. Then second, we see that we have a prayer-hearing God. And then thirdly, we see an answer to prayer. The need for prayer, a prayer-hearing God, and an answer to prayer. Let's turn first and look at our need for prayer from this passage. This passage is a very interesting passage. When I first read it, you may have said to yourself... Pastor, what are you doing here with this as a text for the family and for prayer? What's going on here? I've got all kinds of questions here. This passage is often used to prove other great truths in the Bible. It's a passage that shows us the greatness of faith. The faith of a woman is great. And it shows us that faith is essential and powerful. But also the fact that this is a Canaanite woman shows the application of the gospel to everyone in the world. No one is outside of the bounds of the gospel. We could talk about that. But today I want us to focus on the basics of the story. A woman who has a daughter in great need. And she brings that need. To Jesus. This woman has a spectacular need in her family. Now we don't know much about her family from the text. We don't know if there's a father in the home. We don't know if there are other children in the home. We don't know if there are grandparents. We're simply not told. We're told about this woman and her daughter. What we are told is that this woman has a daughter. But we don't even know how old she is. She could be very young. She could be older. What we know is that this daughter is in horrible distress. She is severely oppressed by a demon, the woman says. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. This is about the worst thing imaginable in this day. To be oppressed by a demon. You see, in our day and age we are used to thinking in terms of what can we possibly do to make things better. But could you imagine if I told you you had a very virulent disease or cancer and there was no known treatment, there was no test you could take, there were no experimental drugs you could use, there were no surgeries that could be done. I couldn't tell you How much longer you had to live, if it was a day or a year. All I knew was that you were going to suffer the rest of your life. That would really strike you, wouldn't it? Because even in the worst cases of disease, we have some hope. We go to the best hospitals. We try to get the best treatments. We try to get in the trial programs. We try to get experimental drugs. But here for this woman, her daughter is oppressed by a demon. There's no solution. And you may remember what that looks like. Do you remember the story of the man who dwelt among the tombs? And as people would pass by, he would jump out at them and attack them. And he was a man that could not be restrained even with chains. He lived in constant pain and agony. He couldn't think straight. He wasn't in his right mind. His family could have nothing to do with him. Typically, to be oppressed by a demon like this was worse than a death sentence. Because if a child had died, at least the mother could mourn the child. Here, all there is is conflict and pain. And there may even be the sense in which this mother would feel responsible for what her daughter would do to other people. It's a horrible, horrible thing to face. Now think about the principle here. A mother who loves her daughter, and the daughter is in pain and misery. She's not getting any better. She's only getting worse. What kind of future will she have? What will become of her when her mother is gone? Now, when we think about this story that way, it can apply to us. Because we have similar needs in our families No, not that we're all filled with demon-possessed children. But we face situations with pain and grief. We have concerns for the future of our children. For some of us, those concerns are immediate and physical. Can they hold down a job? Will they be free from the things that seem to have a stranglehold on them? For others, we're very aware of the spiritual need of our children. We see them wandering from the Lord. We long for them to embrace Jesus by faith. Or then there are in our families the broken relationships. Between husband and wife, between parents and children, between siblings. Family gatherings can be very awkward and tense. Our need is different from hers. But it's just as real and just as painful. ...but there's more than that. If this woman had a problem that required a great deal of effort to fix... ...she would not be so desperate. She would start drawing up a list of things she needs to do. She would know who she needs to contact to get their help. She would make a plan and a calendar... ...and determine all the things that needed to be done to conquer this problem. But Matthew wants us to see her desperation... That this is beyond her. That she has a real inability in addition to a real problem. It's in a little word that we see in verse 22. One of the principles that I try to tell you over and over again is to not read too quickly through your Bibles. The words in the scripture matter. And here there's a little word that probably likely you passed over it in the first reading. But I want to highlight it. It's the word, behold. You see, what Matthew is doing here is something that Mark doesn't do in the other account. Matthew wants to draw your eyes here. He wants your attention focused here. He wants you to see the desperation that this is not some ordinary thing. This is a time of trouble. Behold, look at this woman. She's come. Look at her. He wants us to see her desperation. And so she comes to Jesus... Crying out in a loud voice over and over again. The way that Matthew describes it, it's not a single instance. She's crying out over and over again. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. You see, this mother has nowhere else to turn. She knows this problem is beyond anything that she's capable of. She's completely unable It's not that she needs a boost. It's not that she needs a hand or a leg up. It's completely beyond her. Now, you have to understand that she is far out of the ordinary way. She's called, in Mark's account, in Mark 7, the Syrophoenician woman. And that basically describes the area that Matthew describes for us in the district of Tyre and Sidon. And the way you need to think about this geographically, if you think about Jerusalem as the center of Jewish life, and then if you think about in the far north of Palestine being Galilee, being the hinterlands, the sticks, Tyre and Sidon are even further north and out of the way, up against the sea. It's a completely un-Jewish area. That's why it's called the Syrophoenician area. The Jews didn't live there. As a matter of fact, Jesus went there to get out of the way. He tried to escape the crowds. And that's where she is. And she's clearly desperate. Do you notice that she's not invited into Jesus' presence? There's no part of our passage in which Jesus says... Come unto me, everyone, and I will speak to you words of life. Jesus is simply traveling. Again, he's withdrawn. And so she comes into Jesus' presence in what would have been an awkward interaction for a Gentile woman coming up to a Jewish rabbi. But the reason she does this is she knows she can't solve the problem, she can't help her daughter. She's out of options. And oftentimes, this is what it takes to drive us to Jesus. When we think we've got it, we get magnanimous with Jesus. We put him on hold. Jesus, I'm sure there are other people far more needy of your time right now. I've got this. I don't need you. I'll handle this. But when times get desperate, when the problems loom large... When we know they're beyond our ability to reach, that's when we know we need a Savior. You see, if we look at our problems honestly, we'll see that we're in a similar position to this woman. For as smart as we might be, as hardworking as we might be, as committed as we might be, there are so many family problems that are just beyond us. We can teach and encourage our children, but we can't change their hearts. We can set up structures for family relationships, but we can't control people. What is hardest for us is not just the problems, but the reality that the solutions aren't in our control. She clearly sees that she has a need for prayer. And that's where we see what the woman does. Matthew and Mark in his account do not tell us how long or how hard she tried to solve this problem. And I actually think that's helpful for us. Because if Matthew had told us that this woman tried for a month straight to drive the demon out of her daughter... There would be some author that would publish a book for you called Getting Rid of Your Demons in 31 Days or Less. And you would have to buy that book, and they would tell you what you need to do, and you need to do all of these things before you ask for help. You see, that's how we think. You see, Matthew wants us to focus on Jesus. She goes to Jesus. Now, it was not easy for her to find Jesus. It's not as if she was walking down the street and said, oh, there's Jesus. Maybe he can help. No, Jesus went to this area, Mark tells us, because he had withdrawn. He wanted to get away from the crowds, wanted to get away from the religious leaders, wanted to take a break from teaching, wanted to be in prayer with his father. And Mark actually tells us that Jesus went into a house because he didn't want anyone to know. But Mark adds this interesting additional detail. He says at the same time, he could not be hidden. And she found him. She's unafraid of what people think of her. She is shouting and crying for attention. Clearly, she is of the opinion that only Jesus can help. She will not let up. We see this from the disciples' reaction. They say, send her away, for she's crying out after us. Now, commentators are divided on this as to whether the disciples are saying, Lord, give her what she wants so she leaves. Or, Lord, please get rid of her. What they're united on is they think that she should be out of here. They're tired of her following them. They're tired of her crying and yelling. They're tired of her problem. Get her away from me. But she knows only Jesus can help her. And so she comes up to Jesus. But it's very interesting. She does not address him as rabbi. She doesn't say good teacher. She doesn't say kind master. No, not once, not twice. But three times in this short passage, she addresses him as Lord. Now, this is not a kind of formal address. There is theology behind it. She is identifying Jesus with the sovereign Lord of the Bible. Amazingly, this Canaanite woman, there's an Old Testament word for you. This Canaanite woman knows more about Jesus than the Jewish religious leaders do. She comes to Jesus and she calls him Lord. And it becomes clearer with with her request. She asks him for mercy. She says, Lord, give me mercy. Help me. She knows and asks for compassion from the only one she knows who can give it. Mercy is a gift. It cannot be earned. She's not trying... To strike a deal with Jesus. And this is important for us. Because so often we are tempted to try and make a deal with God. God if you just resolve this problem for me. I will. I will help others. I will give more to charity. I will be in church every Sunday. I will not fall asleep during the pastor's sermon. I will try and be a better follower. And it's a bargain we're trying to make with God. But she doesn't do that. She just comes to Jesus as the sovereign God. And she says, I need mercy. You're the only one who can give it. And what's even more interesting is after the initial rebuff, she presses on. Look at verse 25. She came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. Her kneeling before him is, again, a clear sign that she knows Jesus has the authority and power to save. This word for kneel is often translated in the New Testament as to worship. She comes in a posture of worship before Jesus. He's not just the latest in a string of can't help it. He's the one who can answer her prayer. Matthew describes her over and over again as continuing in her actions. Her crying is going on and on. Her kneeling is going on and on. Her speaking is going on and on. Matthew wants you to have a clear picture that she's clinging to Jesus. This is her only hope. Her desperation has led her to the Lord. The Lord who is sovereign over all things and who is the only one who can help. Now again, we can see ourselves in her. Are you at the end of your rope about something? Are you frustrated in your family? Do you know there's no easy solution to the problems in your family? God is pointing you here to himself. He is Lord. And that is a comfort and a blessing for you. Not only will he hear you, he has the power to save and to bless you. Go to him. But there's also this interesting interchange that the woman has with Jesus. We don't have time to go into all of the details, but it seems odd that Jesus does not answer her a word. Matthew says at first. And then he puts her off with this unusual statement in verse 24 I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then, before we know it, he appears to be rejecting her with an insult. It's not right to take the children's bread or throw it to the dogs. Now, what does this statement mean? I don't know, and we don't have time to parse out what is the bread, actually. Who are the children, actually? What does it mean to throw? But I can tell you this. It clearly appears he's referring to her as a dog. That's not exactly what we expect from Jesus. Now, I have to give you a little bit of information here. The word here for dog is a little different than the ordinary word for dog. When the Jews called Gentiles dogs, they meant a scavenging, dirty, disease-ridden, wandering, wildish animal. The word here for dog has more of the context of a domesticated animal. Or you might even think of it as a puppy. So there's a different kind of a feel when I say that, right? So even me, I am not known for my love of dogs. Even I acknowledge that puppies are cute. And I don't mind looking at puppies. Just don't, I don't want to take care of puppies and clean up after puppies. But a puppy is a very different thing than a dog in most people's minds. And you have to remember, too, we don't have the tone of Jesus' voice. And we don't have his facial expression. You know, some who look at this text think he looked at her with kind of a twinkle in his eye and a smile on his face. And he said, look, you can't give to the, to the puppies what the children should have. Now, that has a whole different kind of connotation. But again, what's going on here? I think we need to focus on the big picture to see. She comes in verse 22 to Jesus, and she calls him Lord. But she also calls him Son of David. Now, why does she do that? Remember, we're told she's a Gentile, a Canaanite, no less. She's clearly not a Jew. She's not a part of the Jewish community. So why is she using Jewish language? This is also clearly important to Jesus because he responds by describing his mission in terms of the sheep of the house of Israel. And then he tells her in verse 26, it's not right to give to the dogs the children's bread. Yet we know that it's not ethnicity that counts with Jesus. We've seen Jesus interact with a Samaritan woman. We saw him heal the servant of the centurion of Rome. You don't get less Jewish than a Roman centurion. I think what's being made clear here to us is that prayer is not just about going to the one who can fix things. It's about going to the one With whom we have a relationship. God is sovereign. He is Lord. He is able. Don't forget that. But it is important for us to know and remember that he is our God. Our covenant God. You see, she's using covenant language, son of David. That means more than just Jewish man. It brings up the idea of God's covenant with David. Of the promise that God has made to his people. And we know from the Abrahamic covenant that God has people beyond the ethnically Jewish. It is through the seed of Abraham, that is Jesus, that all nations will be blessed. She knows this. And so she pleads for mercy on that basis. She comes to Jesus, not just because he is able but because she knows who he is. This is a word for you today. You can't just throw up prayers to someone you hope is up there. listening. The prayer-hearing God is the God of his people. You have to trust him. You have to love him. You have to know him. And the good news is that he promises that he hears the prayers of his children. No prayer is too big, no prayer is too small. Well, let's look now at the third thing. She sees she has a need for prayer. She goes to a God, a prayer hearing God. And now, thirdly, we see an answer. prayer now let's touch again on the unusual part of this scene what we expect is for the woman to come to jesus to cry out for help for jesus to show compassion and to answer her but that's not what we get here is it first he seems to ignore her in verse 23 he spoke not a word to her we don't even know if he looked in her direction Then, in verse 23, his disciples are trying to shoo her away. Get her out of here. She's trouble. Then, Jesus says in verse 24, that he's sent to Israel. And the implication there is, not to Canaanites. Not to Syrophoenicians. And then finally, he tells her that it's not right that the bread of the children should be given to dogs. Now, There is a great deal here, we could say, about the history of redemption. But this is not a theology lecture. And this is not the sermon. Jesus' mission was first to the Jews, but it wasn't exclusively to the Jews. Or we could talk about the nature of the kingdom and its expansion. Or we could go back to Genesis or forward to Acts and see about the unfolding of the kingdom. But I don't want to do that here. I want to focus on something else. Mark gives us one little detail that Matthew's missing. In his account of verse 26, he says that the children get the bread first. And then the implication is that others afterward. And that helps us to understand how Jesus relates to humanity. You see, with respect to prayer, this teaches us something crucial. When we pray, we... ...are in need. And that need is immediate. Sometimes it's really immediate. Sometimes it just feels immediate. But either way, we want an answer, don't we? We want help now. Surely that was the case with this woman... ...especially given the state that her daughter was in. So why does Jesus make her wait? Why does he put her off to the test four times... Surely Jesus knew all along that he was going to heal her daughter. Why this awkward interaction? I think it helps us to understand that God makes us wait at times. There's an old saying that says, God answers prayer. Sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says no, and sometimes he says wait. When we go to God in prayer, We have to be prepared to be told to wait. Now, that's uncomfortable. That's difficult. But God's ways are not our ways. Sometimes we will find out why waiting was best. Sometimes we will understand the circumstances and see the good in it. But very often we do not. Very often, beloved, we will not know until glory. We have to trust the perfect, blessed will of God. That he's wise in asking us to wait. That he has good reasons to ask us to wait. That he has loving reasons to ask us to wait. But notice how she responds to the waiting. It doesn't discourage her. She doesn't give up. She doesn't assume the answer is no. If anything, she gets bolder. She cries out and Jesus doesn't answer. So she goes to his feet. And then he tells her, well, no, I don't think so. And then she starts to remind Jesus of his mercy. Look how bold she is in verse 27. Jesus says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she says, yes, Lord, not e- yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Now, you have to understand here, when she says, yes, Lord, she's not saying, yeah, I know you're right. You're always right. You're Jesus. Yeah, I get it. No. She's bold. Yes, okay, but what about this? Don't forget this, Lord. I'm not giving up. I wonder about you, but I'm not sure if Jesus were right here in front of us. That I could be that bold with Jesus. She won't give up. She persists. (coughs) Do you see how persistent we need to be in prayer? There's a boldness, a holy boldness that lays a hold of God and won't let go. It's like Jacob wrestling the angel. Here's a spoiler alert. That's prayer. That's not an NCAA match. That's Jacob wrestling in prayer with the Lord all night. And he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. That's persistence in prayer. She's another example of this. She's like the friend who comes and knocks on the door at midnight. And the owner says, go away, come back tomorrow. The door's locked. I'm in bed. I'm under the covers. And what happens? Come on, no, get out of here. He doesn't give up. And what does Jesus tell us? That for that persistence, he'll answer and give. Or what about that woman that comes to the judge and says, I want justice. And the judge says, get out of here. She comes back tomorrow and he says, she says, I want justice. And the judge says, I told you, get out. She comes back again, I want justice. And finally, the judge says, look, I don't fear God. I don't fear man. But lady, to get rid of you, here's your justice. Now, that is not a parable about how annoying you can be. That's a parable to tell you to be persistent and never give up. Jesus has been testing her faith. It's why four times he gives her the opportunity to give up. She could have said, after she cried out and Jesus didn't answer, she could have said, well, I guess he's not going to talk to me. I'll leave. Or if the disciples said, get her out of here, she could have said, well, even his disciples want to get rid of me, I guess I have to leave. Or after Jesus said, I'm only sent to the lost sheep of Israel, she could have said, I know, and I'm not a sheep of Israel. I guess I don't have an answer. I'm going to leave. But she doesn't. You see, Jesus tests her faith not for his benefit, but for hers. See, we come at this and we think somehow Jesus tests our faith to see if it's worthy and whether it's worth his time. But that's not what's going on here. He tests her faith to strengthen it. Her faith when she leaves is stronger and more vibrant than when she came. That's what Jesus is doing here. She won't give up. She can't give up. She has a mother's love for her child and she knows that only Jesus... Can help. Jesus may test your faith in prayer. Don't give up. Keep going to Jesus. Plead for his mercy. Remind him of his promises to you. That's what Jesus is telling you here. You see, when we think about Christian families, we can be tempted to fall for the self-help program. And I have to tell you, beloved, you can go down to the Christian bookstore and buy dozens of them. Ten steps to a perfect family. Or this is a surefire way to make sure your children are Christians. But life's not like that. Life is hard. It has bumps and bruises. But we need to remember that God is good. We know that because he's told us. We know that because he's shown it to us by sending his son to die for us. Prayer is a practical response to that knowledge. Our prayers testify that we believe that the Lord is in control, that he loves us, and that he cares for us. Prayer is the hope of the family.